You're listening to Making Waves, fresh ideas in freshwater science. Making Waves is a monthly podcast where we talk about new ideas in freshwater science and why they matter to you. Making Waves is brought to you with support by the Society for Freshwater Science. Hello, I'm Tim Klein. On this podcast, Merrill Mims, a graduate student from the School of Aquatic and Fishery Sciences at the University of Washington, will be discussing her research on how stream flow regimes structure fish communities. This research has resulted in two recent publications in the journals Freshwater Biology and Ecology. We are excited to have her here today to tell us a little bit about these complex relationships and how they can be used to help freshwater conservation in the future. Thanks for joining me today, Merrill. I'd like to start with this idea of flow regimes. Stream flows are naturally variable, changing throughout the season with weather patterns. Also, different streams have different flow patterns, but yet species prosper in all conditions. So how do species cope with these highly variable environmental conditions? Sure. Thanks, Tim. So um, all organisms face these trade-offs between investment in growth, survival, and reproduction. And those trade-offs lead to the evolution of life history strategies uh, that allow organisms to optimize fitness in the face of these ecological challenges. Um, And so life history strategies are something that I'm really interested in with my research. Um, And so constraints on life histories, and in particular how the environment may filter or uh, select for certain life histories, is an area and always has been an area of intense interest in ecology. And in freshwater ecology in particular, there's a lot of interest in the role of stream flow and the flow regime in life histories of aquatic organisms. Um, The flow regime is considered the primary driver of freshwater ecosystems because flow is so incredibly important. For example, flow structures physical habitat, it provides connectivity, it frames biotic interactions, and ultimately uh, the flow regime can select for life history strategies both on an ecological time frame, so for example, survival, growth rates, and fitness effects on individuals, as well as on an evolutionary time frame by filtering for uh, certain strategies through selection over many generations. So in order to study the relationship between environmental drivers like the flow regime and life history strategies, it helps to first have a really solid um, understanding of constraints on life history strategies. So as you're saying, life history strategies are incredibly diverse. Every species has a slightly different way of making a living on the planet, but scientists have sort of boiled this down into several dominant groupings. What are these groupings and what sets them apart from one another? Sure. So, of course, um, in order to study this relationship between uh, things like you know, flow regime attributes and uh, life history strategies, it helps to first have a solid understanding of those constraints on life history strategies. Uh, there's been a lot of really great and highly influential work to characterize life histories across organisms and to define the extreme or kind of endpoint strategies that bound all of those other intermediate life histories. And uh, Kirk Weinmiller and others have done extensive work characterizing fish life histories, and they've identified these three strategies that really bound and very well characterize the diversity of life histories we see in both freshwater and marine fishes. Um, So I just want to talk a little bit about how each of those strategies, those three strategies, um, relate to uh, stream flow. So the first of the three endpoint strategies is the opportunistic strategy, and it's typically uh, characterized by small-bodied fishes with quick generation time 
and um, low investment in offspring. Uh, so this is kind of like your, your classic R-selected strategists as well. Um, they're typically associated with habitats with frequent, intense, and often unpredictable disturbance. We might expect to see opportunistic strategists associated with highly variable and uh, unpredictable flow regimes. Uh, the next strategy, the periodic strategy, characterizes large body fishes with long generation times, high fecundity, uh, but low uh, investment in uh, each offspring. And we typically associate periodic strategists with highly seasonal environments um, and expect them to do well in flow regimes that are variable but also predictable. So, for example, streams and rivers with a spring snowmelt pulse at roughly the same time every year. Uh, and then finally, the, the third strategy is the equilibrium strategy, which kind of mirrors your classic K strategist. Um, and that strategy describes species with small to medium body size, intermediate generation time, and a high investment per offspring, but a low number of offspring. Uh, we associate them with really stable habitats with low variation, and we might expect to see equilibrium strategists dominate highly stable flow regimes, uh, such as streams and rivers with consistent kind of groundwater source. So far, you've discussed how life history theory might predict which species prosper under different flow regimes, but your research set out to determine if these relationships held up in natural ecosystems. How did you go about looking for these linkages? Um, so my master's research here at the University of Washington with Julian Olin was really driven by this question of whether we see evidence of this predicted flow life history relationship for fishes across a really broad geographic scale that encompasses taxonomically diverse assemblages uh, and really different flow regimes. So um, to test this, we selected 109 sites uh, with minimal or no stream flow alteration across the United States. And uh, these sites had both a standardized fish survey conducted by the EPA, as well as at least 15 years of continuous streamflow data provided by USGS uh, Streamflow Gauge to characterize that flow regime. Uh, what we did then is we looked at whether we saw evidence that supported those predicted relationships between flow regime characteristics and um, fish life histories by simply looking at the proportion of those three life history strategies and relating that to those stream flow characteristics, so especially stream flow variability, predictability, and uh, seasonality. So what we found was pretty compelling. Uh, the majority of the relationships we examined between life history strategies and uh, the flow regime characteristics supported those predictions that were laid out um, prior to the study based on life history theory. And what's even, um, what was even more interesting is that of the significant relationships we found, 82% were in agreement with those uh, predicted relationships. Uh, specifically, we found strong uh, evidence for this link between uh, the opportunistic strategy and high flow variability. We also found that the periodic strategy uh, was highly linked with um, a lot of flow seasonality. And then finally, the equilibrium strategy was really predominant in um, streams with, with highly stable flows. There are many other factors in addition to the flow regime that play into life history strategies uh, that may be advantageous for a given environment. And these include biotic interactions, the thermal regime, and absolutely uh, biogeographic constraints. But what's so interesting about what we found is that even across a really broad geographic scale with all these other factors uh, potentially playing a role in, flow and, um, in the life histories, 
uh, we're seeing evidence that full regime really does play a major role in filtering for life history strategies. What are some of the natural and anthropogenic disturbances that are currently altering stream flows, but also what might be important in the future? Sure. So in the absence of human activities, uh, streamflow really interacts with channel geology to create this kind of physical habitat um, and that template that filters life history strategies of aquatic organisms. Um, there are many other important kind of natural factors that influence streamflow, uh, and with regard to disturbance uh, specifically, these could include geomorphic processes, uh, catastrophic disturbance like fire, and then of course uh, precipitation events. And uh, the life history of fishes and other aquatic organisms have kind of formed and are maintained on that uh, natural habitat template. So where this gets interesting is that in terms of anthropogenic disturbance, uh, societies have been altering stream flow for millennia to fit our needs. And this is, of course, not surprising given that water is a fundamental requirement for societies. Um, the effects of human activities on stream flow are highly variable depending on uh, the activity that you're kind of considering. So, for example, uh, I work a lot with dams and with the effect of dams on fish assemblages. And um, dams provide substantial benefit to society, including obviously drinking water, irrigation, flood control, and in the last century in particular, hydropower. And uh, dams tend to kind of dampen the seasonal uh, seasonality and the variability of stream flow, but they can also introduce incredible short-term daily variation with activities like hydropeaking uh, that can result in these huge daily fluctuations in water discharge in order to kind of meet energy demands for energy consumers. Um, dams can also have a profound impact on the thermal regime of streams and rivers, and temperature we know often acts in tandem with flow events uh, to provide these important uh, biotic cues uh, for aquatic organisms. So as a result, dams obviously significantly alter uh, downstream and upstream communities of aquatic organisms, and uh, one of the major vectors of that is through that change, those changes in the flow regime. So given these impacts of dams on the streams and that we kind of know that they have significant consequences for fish communities, we often see sometimes really expensive mitigation projects such as uh, the construction of fish ladders for dam passage by salmonids um, or even on the more extreme end, the complete removal of obsolete dams like the Elwha uh, here in Washington State. And so, uh, you know, even though we know there's these mitigation projects, the truth is that with continuing energy and water demands uh, all over the world, dams are likely going to continue to be a reality. And understanding how they impact freshwater organisms is really important uh, in planning for future conservation um, or management actions. So that's a lot about dams, uh, but of course they're not the only thing we do that affects stream flow. Uh, climate change uh, is likely going to have really substantial um, uh, implications for stream flow, given that we expect uh, altered precipitation patterns in many regions of the world. Uh, activities such as human water consumption and irrigation can uh, decrease the magnitude of stream flow, sometimes uh, often actually resulting in complete dewatering of streams and rivers that um, used to flow year-round. So, um, yeah, the, the effects of um, human water use and stream flow alteration is likely going to be kind of an ongoing challenge uh, as human populations continue to grow. How can these relationships between flow regime characteristics and fish community assemblages be used to conserve freshwater ecosystems in the future? So um, our research 
uh, has kind of helped highlight really broad patterns across um, space and, and even across time, uh, including many regions and many different fish species. And I think what we were able to show is that flow regimes are an important, uh, if not the dominant filter for fish life history strategies. And I think studies like ours uh, are an important part of ecologically sound management of streams and rivers. Uh, For example, there's a relatively recent call for environmental flows, which essentially describe the release of water below dams in a way that mimic the natural or pre-dam flow regime. Uh, And an important part of prescribed flows like that is the ability to understand or even predict how organisms will respond to different flow regimes. So, you know, our studies are kind of starting to get at that, but one of the challenges with such a broad approach as the ones that that kind of we've taken uh, are the loss of that finer scale detail, such as the effect of a particular flow event uh, or the magnitude of a particular flow event. So what we're really missing with our approach is that clear mechanistic link that can be so hard to provide with um, just observational studies. And so uh, one possible way to improve understanding of those mechanisms is by conducting experimental floods below dams and then following the uh, kind of specific responses to those, uh, those events. And we're seeing more and more studies like that in the literature, and I think that's really exciting. Also, I think improving our ability to classify uh, flow regimes in streams and rivers will help improve those flow ecology relationships uh, where we don't have 15 years of gauge data or other reliable empirical data. And of course, that in many cases um, is most of the streams and rivers out there. And then finally, I think studies that focus on specific regions or those that focus on a type of dam or flow regime are the ones that we're hearing uh, a lot of um, kind of interest in because those types of studies provide potentially the most useful information for managers given that they can be applied across multiple sites. So they're not site or species specific, but they help cut out some of the noise of uh, studies that span many flow regimes or many regions. Um, And so I guess my hope is that the the research I've contributed to will provide um, support for this life history or traits-based approach um, in understanding our, these flow ecology links. And I think it's going to be really exciting to see how uh, this particular area progresses in the next few years. This podcast was brought to you with support from the Society for Freshwater Science. For more information about this speaker, the podcast, or the society, please visit www.freshwater-science.org. Be sure to join us each month for more fresh ideas in freshwater science. Thanks for listening.